Hello, hello. Welcome to the TCC podcast. Or if you've been here before, welcome back. This is the True Crime Chronicles, and I am Lindsay. Be sure to follow me so you never miss an episode. Share, comment, like, leave me a rating, all the fun stuff. I am just starting out, so that would help me out a bunch, and I would appreciate it a ton. So episode five of the Solved Saturday series is going to focus on a recent case that is currently making its way through the judicial system out in California. And that is the case of Cash App founder Bob Lee. Now, Bob was brutally murdered by the brother of a friend of his that he may or may not have been sleeping with. I'm also going to throw in an allegedly here because Nima hasn't been convicted yet. So the brother is still, you know, waiting to be convicted. Now, I thought this was going to be a relatively straightforward case, but as I started to research it, it took a turn pretty quick. Extramarital affairs, recreational drugs, a lot of recreational drugs, a volatile temper, and a lot of assumptions with a little peek inside the lives of the incredibly wealthy. So sit back, relax, let's get started. Everyone gets excited when they hear that little cha-ching sound notifying them of a cash app payment. It's super fun. You either instant deposit it to your bank account, use your cash app card, or if you are more responsible than me, maybe you let it sit there. The ease of sending money to your kids, parents, a friend in an emergency with just a quick click has been just one convenience that technology advancement has afforded us. Now, I use Cash App all the time, and I never really gave much thought as to how it got here or who in the world was smart enough to create it. I just click download on my phone and the app pops up and life is a bit easier and I go on about my day, right? So technology is not my strong suit in any way. So even figuring out the apps, a little difficult for Lindsay. Now, it wasn't until news headlines everywhere started reporting about the brutal murder of a man named Bob Lee in San Francisco that I actually learned some about the background of Cash App and, in my opinion, the genius, you know, behind the person who created it. And, you know, not just Cash App, but the amazing contributions to technology and its advancements that Bob made, you know, outside of Cash App. Bob, at one time, he was a husband. He was a father, a brother, a son, And by all accounts, he seemed to be a technological genius that helped a lot of people. So who would want to kill such a great guy? A rival company, a former partner, a jealous husband caught up in a love triangle, a homeless transient? Not exactly. 
I started to dig into Bob Lee, his background and his interests. I had heard that the tech world is just rife with drugs, competition, and ruthless rivalries. So did Bob get caught up in that type of lifestyle? Was this a random attack? Very quickly, it came out that, no, this most definitely was not random. It was quite the opposite, actually. It was very targeted and very premeditated. So to understand the ending, we need to start at the beginning. Who was Bob Lee? And how did he end up stabbed to death in the 300 block of Main Street in the Rincon Hill neighborhood of San Francisco in the early morning hours of April 4th, 2023? Bob Lee was born December 20th, 1979 in St. Louis, Missouri to father Rick Lee and his mother Nanette Lee, who unfortunately passed away in 2019. He had a brother. Tim Oliver Lee. Now, side note here. More of a fun fact. It doesn't have anything to do with this case, but I found it interesting. Bob had polydactyly. Now, I don't know what kind he had, just that he had it, and he did undergo surgery to correct it. Now, polydactyly is basically you have an extra finger. Normally, right, typically it's going to be the pinky or the thumb. I don't know why that is, but I would say probably more often the pinky. And there's a couple different kinds of polydactyly. I Again, I don't know what kind he had, just that he had it and got it taken care of. Again, nothing to do with nothing, but I thought it was a fun fact. Now, Bob grew up in St. Louis and he attended Lindbergh High School. And while in high school, Bob wrote a 3D rendering engine in Turbo Pascal. And I feel like I should be super impressed by this, but genuinely, I have no idea what it is, what it does, or what it even means, right? But it seemed like it was important, so I wanted him to have his props, I guess. So super smart, right? Even as a teenager, Now, Bob also played water polo in his high school, and he loved it. And like everything else, he gave 100% to it, and he excelled. Bob was given the moniker Crazy Bob for the energy and enthusiasm that he showed in the pool. Now, I think that is awesome that they had water polo. I have never seen a high school have a water polo team. So I don't know if that's a regional thing. Right, like I am from Florida, Broward County, and I went to a pretty big high school, but we never had a water polo team. So I found that super cool, actually, that they had one. But Bob liked that nickname so much that he carried it with him all the way to social media, making it his handle on Twitter or the platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. No, I'm fucking kidding. It's Twitter. It's going to always be Twitter. That X nonsense is just stupid. So, Twitter. But from high school, Bob attended Southeast Missouri State University. And while at university, Crazy Bob pledged the Sigma Chi fraternity. 
But college didn't turn out to be Bob's cup of tea. And he ended up dropping out in order to just do his own thing. Now, I kind of feel like that is a common theme among, you know, the tech people that are super smart. They they never kind of complete college. and I don't know if they're bored and they are just so far advanced that it doesn't make sense to finish. I don't know, but that does seem to just kind of be a, a common theme that they don't, you know, finish college. From 1998 through 2004, Bob worked as a senior consultant for multiple different companies. This time frame also sent Bob back to the Southeast Missouri University, but as an employee, employee, specifically as a web developer. Now, 2004 to 2010 brought some big changes for Bob. A 2004 move to San Francisco led to a steady stretch of employment at Google. So he up and moves from Missouri to San Francisco to work for Google and kind of take a chance on this new job, right? Now, 2010 through 2014, Bob became the chief technology officer for the e-commerce company Square, which I guess now is known as Block. Now, while at Square, Bob led the development of the company's Android app. And from there, Bob went on to take over the development of Square's iOS app from the now deceased co-founder, Tristan O'Tierney. In 2013, Bob developed a mobile payment service called Square Cash, which was eventually renamed to what we know as Cash App. And Bob sent the very first payment ever on Cash App to the Twitter co-founder and block chairman, Jack Dorsey. And it was a $4 payment. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it was $4 or if that was just like a funny thing between them. If there was, you know, significance to them for the $4. I don't know. But it was $4, and that is who Bob sent the first ever Cash App payment to. Now, obviously, Cash App is, you know, super well-known app, right? It's used by tens of millions of people. When I looked in the Google Play Store, yes, I am an Android girl, and I will be forever. It showed 50 million plus downloads, and honestly, I'm surprised that it's not a higher number. So Bob left Square in 2014, and he spent several years kind of working as an advisor for various different startup companies. He also became a CEO of a San Francisco-based group chat app called Present in 2015. Now, Bob becomes involved with company MobileCoin, right? So this is like a cryptocurrency payment firm in 2017. He started out as an early stage investor and advisor, and from there, he became the company's chief product officer in 2021, and he also helped to launch Mobi. Now, Mobi is described on their website as a payment app that allows users to send and receive money from anyone, anywhere, in less than five seconds with the same privacy that you can get from cash. 
Now, Moby is also centered around cryptocurrency. During the COVID pandemic, Bob assisted the World Health Organization by helping to build a large portion of the server for its COVID-19 app. Bob was also an active investor with stakes in companies like Figma, Clubhouse, and SpaceX. Now, sometime in between all of the work and developing that Bob was doing, he meets a woman named Krista Drake, who was also born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and the two would eventually marry. Now, I looked all over for the year that they got married, and I could not find it anywhere. The best I could find is that they were married for between 15 and 20 years before um, they separated in 2019. And I don't believe that they ever fully divorced, but I could not verify that 100%. However, most of the articles that I saw said that they separated in 2019, and it was a separation only. Now, during their marriage, Bob and Krista had two daughters, Dagny Lee, who is 17 or 18 this year, I couldn't find anything about their birthdays, really. One article said 17 and the other one said 18. So finding any information on his personal life was super hard. He he kept that part of him very private. And for obvious reasons, I get it. But typically, if you are a public figure, it is very difficult to keep anything about your life off the internet. So the fact that he was able to do that is impressive, right? Now, the second daughter, Scout Lee, she was born in 2019, so around 14 years old. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't just happy times in the Lee household In addition to Bob and Krista separating in 2019, Bob suffers a terrible loss when his mother, Nanette Lee, passes away. His father then moves across the country to go live with Bob. Now, after Bob and Krista separate, him and his father move to Mill City, California to kind of reconnect and enjoy this newly found bachelor life together. Now, Mill City is in Marin County, which is located about 14 miles north of San Francisco. But October of 2022, Bob and his dad make the move down to Miami with Krista and their two daughters staying behind to stay around the Bay Area. Now, this brings us to April of 2023. Bob is back in San Francisco. He was supposed to head back to Miami, but he extended his trip by an extra day. 2.35 a.m., April 4th. This is a Tuesday morning on the 300 block of Main Street in the Rincon Hills area of San Francisco. Surveillance video show a man clearly injured and staggering down Main Street, bleeding profusely, trying in vain to find any type of help possible before collapsing in front of a condominium building near the Embarcadero waterfront. This is in the city's downtown area. 
a bloody kitchen knife with blood on the handle was found near a sidewalk that was seen in the video. Now, he's rushed to the hospital where after hours of trying to save his life, he dies on the operating table at 6.49 a.m. at San Francisco General Hospital. Now, the man in the videos was 43-year-old Bob Lee. He had been stabbed to death. The news of his death shocked the tech community and had a ton of people grieving for a man who seemed to overall be a pretty amazing guy. So what happened? Was this just an example of the rampant violence that is known to be a big problem in downtown San Francisco? Was this a rival tech person? The crypto curse taking over? A love triangle? What happened to Bob Lee? Everyone wanted answers in Bob Lee's death. The police were trying to put together a timeline of what happened the night that Bob was stabbed to death. Now, I'm going to start by going over the major players, if you will, and their relationships to each other. Otherwise, this is probably going to get super confusing um, as we sort out Bob's last, you know, kind of 24 to 48 hours. So we have Nima Momeni. He's an acquaintance of Bob Lee's and a colleague in the same field. Now, they didn't work together, but they worked in, you know, the same general technology field, right? And Bob dated Nima's ex-girlfriend three years before he passed away. Now, Hazar Momeni Elyasnia. This is Nima's sister and wife of a super rich plastic surgeon. Also, she's a friend of Bob Lee's and for whatever reason, she often went by the name Tina. Yeah. Jeremy Boyven, this is the drug dealer and apparently a party friend as well of both Bob and Hazar. Aranza is Hazar's friend. And there was kind of a random woman, which was another friend of Hazar's, but we don't know her name. And then, of course, Bob Lee. So those are, you know, the main people that were involved in this sort of incident. So in the early morning hours of April 3rd, 2023, Bob Lee attends an after party hosted by Hazar in her luxury Millennium Tower apartment. Now, I'm going to say, I don't know if this was Hazar's main residence or if this was just like a party place. I don't believe her husband lived there with her. I know that they were having some issues at the time, so it's possible that they were just living apart and that was her place. So Hazar is having an after-hours party at her apartment April 3rd. Later that afternoon, Bob and Hazar attend a second party that was hosted by Jeremy at his San Francisco apartment. So in addition to Bob and Hazar, Hazar's friend Aranza was there and the other 
unidentified female friend. So everybody's partying, right? Having a good time, doing their thing. And Jeremy gives Hazar and Aranza three hits of GHB. Now, GHB is often referred to as a date rape drug, but it is also often used recreationally as a party drug in some circles. So it's unclear if the girls knew that's what they were taking, but based off what I could find, it did sound voluntary. But for whatever reason, the girls had a bad reaction to the drug or a bad reaction to the mix of drugs since GHB was not the only drug that they were doing. Cocaine, GHB, LSD, and Whippets were among the other drugs available at the party. Fucking Whippets, though. I, I, don't, I don't know an adult that does Whippets. I feel like that's what you do in high school when you have no money to buy anything else, right? And you're just being stupid with your friends. I don't know. I've never done a whip it myself, but it just seems odd that was at the party, especially in combination to the cocaine, GHB, LSD. Like those are pretty major drugs. And then you have whippets. So, yeah. So Aranza becomes sick and she passes out. Now, both of those are common effects of GHB. When she wakes back up, she sees Hazar crying and wearing only her bikini. Now, I don't know what she was wearing when she passed out or like what she had on before. But based off that statement, I'm assuming she had on more than her bikini. So Aranda tries to call Hazar's husband to pick them up. They were done partying at this point and they were no longer having fun. And I imagine too that they were still pretty hazy at this time also. GHB kind of takes a minute to come out of. Aranza couldn't reach the husband, so instead she calls Hazar's brother, Nima Momeni, to have him come and get them. So Nima heads to Jeremy's to get the girls. At this time, Bob had already left the party but it's unclear at what time he had taken off. Now, I do want to say, though, that that's pretty shitty that he would leave those two women in that condition at this guy's house. And I understand if they trust them and, you know, nothing happened. The girls said nothing happened. But still, that's kind of a bitch move, right? You don't leave your friends like that. But whatever. So, but yeah, he was gone when Nima arrived to get the two women. And when Nima got there, he was enraged, right? I'm talking pissed the fuck off. He was assuming, I guess, that his sister and Jeremy were having some sort of sexual relationship. So they leave and Nima takes his sister to her apartment at the Millennium Tower. Later that night, Hazar hosts a party. And this is at her apartment now. So Jeremy comes over to Hazar's apartment and Nima loses his shit and throws Jeremy out. Now, 
Witnesses said Nima was behaving in a very threatening manner to Jeremy, telling him, you know, fuck you, I'll kill you. I mean, just popping off, right? Acting an absolute ass. Now, while this is going on at Hazar's, Bob Lee was back at his hotel room at one hotel with a friend of his. So just before midnight, Bob decides he is going to walk down to Hazar's apartment, which apparently is quite close to his hotel. So Bob texts her that he is going to walk over, and she responds by sending him her apartment number, followed by a message saying, babe, I want to pass out. So Bob heads over there anyway, but I'm not sure the exact time he leaves, but he does arrive at her apartment complex or the, you know, tower at 12.39 a.m. on April 4th. So it's at this point that surveillance cameras show Bob arriving at Millennium Tower and taking an elevator up. I'm guessing that Nima was already at his sister's house because the next thing we see is Bob and Nima getting into the elevator around 2 a.m. and then leaving the apartment building together where they both get into Nima's white BMW with Bob getting in the passenger seat. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second and discuss what possibly went down in Hazar's apartment between 12.39 and 2 a.m. And we know something did because at 8.31, she sends a text message to Bob alluding to an argument between Bob and Nima. And we will come back to that a little bit later. So according to investigators, Nima was upset. And I'm not going to use the word upset. Nima was pissed, right? About Lee's, quote, inappropriate behavior with his sister at one of the parties. Now, Bob had attended several parties in the past 24 to 48 hours. So I don't know if he meant just his inappropriate behavior in general or at a specific party. Now, I would say possibly the one, the party that he had to pick up his sister from. I'm thinking maybe he's upset that Bob left the women in that condition. I would be. I would be for sure. But I don't know. So at this point, though, to say that Nima is mad is an understatement. Not only is Nima upset about possibly Bob giving Kazar drugs, but now he thinks that she also might be having a sexual relationship with Bob as well. Same as he accused Jeremy just a few hours earlier. So to me, it, it doesn't appear that he, it just, he doesn't seem to think super highly of his sister. I, I don't know. That just, I guess he just assumes that she fucks everybody. I don't know. So while Bob was there, Nima was pretty aggressively, you know, kind of verbally going at Bob. A friend witnessed a conversation that Bob had with Nima about his sister. Now, this person wasn't sure if Lee and Hazar did have a sexual relationship of any kind, but she did say that Hazar's marriage had possibly been in jeopardy. But Bob reassures Nima like there is nothing inappropriate going on. You know, they're just friends. Chill the fuck out, right? Just calm down. 
You're going to give yourself a stroke, high blood pressure. It's not good for you. I added that part, not Bob, but I'm a nurse and all of that's true. So now we're back to them getting into Nima's white BMW. Now, I don't know if he was supposed to be taking Bob back to his hotel or what he told him to kind of get him in the car. But Bob gets in and he's riding shotgun. They take off. Nima drove him and Bob to a dark and secluded area of San Francisco directly after leaving Millennium Tower. Now, this entire route is captured on surveillance cameras. And also on camera is Nima and Bob seen standing on a sidewalk in the Rincon Hill neighborhood for about five minutes. It's been suggested that Bob got out of the car because he had called a ride from either Uber or Lyft or, you know, some other rideshare service. And that's why he was out of the car. And then Nima followed him outside to continue their talk or argument. So after about five minutes of them standing on the sidewalk, Nima allegedly appeared to make a sudden movement toward Bob, kind of like to like lunge at him. As soon as he does that, Nima jumps back in his car and surveillance catches him leaving the area in his white Beamer at a high rate of speed, leaving Bob alone on the sidewalk. Bob quickly calls 911 and screams to the dispatcher, help, someone stabbed me. Bob was clutching his chest where he had been stabbed with one hand and held his cell phone in the other hand pleading for help. Bob had stumbled his way up San Francisco's main street away from Bay Bridge, where ultimately he collapsed in front of 403 Main Street in front of an apartment complex named Portside leaving a trail of blood drops and smears down an entire city block. Now, the Rincon Hill neighborhood where Bob was attacked says they have 24-7 private security patrols. But at the time of the stabbing, the two security guards were busy kind of roaming through their 67-block route, but were not nearby. So the security guards are on 24-7 call for all the residents and businesses in the area for any security concerns. And the businesses in that area are Google, Mozilla, and Gap, just to kind of name a few. CCTV footage showed Bob wounded and stumbling to a parked car. It was a Toyota Camry with its hazard lights on. And I'm wondering if that was the rideshare that Bob had called when he was in the car with Nima that kind of caused him to get out of the car. But He gets to this car and he lifts up his shirt to show the driver that he is injured and he needs help. But the driver of the Camry says, oh, hell no. I want no part of this mess and just takes the fuck off. That's just, oh, that is very cold-blooded to me. I mean, that is callous. But. He did. I don't know. Maybe, you know, at that time in the morning, he didn't really know what was going on. He kind of freaked out. I don't know. I guess I can't judge the driver, but I would have at least called 911 and not left, I think. And directly after this 
encounter with the Camry, Bob collapses. Now, Officer Cedric Hood, he's with the San Francisco Police Department. He arrived on the scene within six minutes. I don't know if that's long or not. Six minutes. It seems kind of long, but it probably isn't, right? I don't know. But Officer Cedric finds Bob on the ground. He's unresponsive, with no pulse, and bleeding uncontrollably from his chest and hip. Now, Officer Cedric is with another officer, and they begin CPR. And, you know, but with the blood coming out of his chest and the location of the injury, I don't know how effective CPR would be. But, I mean, yeah, they, you know, had to do something, right? They felt like they needed to do something to help this man while they waited for EMS. Now, EMS does get there, and Bob is rushed by ambulance to San Francisco General Hospital, where he undergoes immediate emergency surgery. Bob had been stabbed in the hip, and at least twice in the heart. Now, one stab was to the right lateral anterior inferior ventricle, and the right posterior lateral inferior ventricle of the heart inferior ventricle of the heart. That was a lot to say. <laughs> now, Bob also suffered an injury to his lung. The doctors spent four hours trying to treat Bob's injuries and save his life. But unfortunately, Bob died on the operating table and was pronounced dead at 6.49 a.m., at San Francisco General Hospital. Back at the crime scene, law enforcement was trying to piece together what happened that ended in a 43-year-old being stabbed to death at 2.30 in the morning in an otherwise, I guess, pretty safe and upper-class neighborhood. Crime scene investigators at the scene begin to process the blood droplets and smears that went down the block. Also, police find a four-inch blood-stained Joseph Joseph brand kitchen knife abandoned in a fenced-in Caltrans parking lot along the same street. The knife was collected and, you know, they kind of presume this to be the murder weapon, which it was. Now, this knife matched the brand of kitchen knives the, of a set that were at Hazar's apartment. At 8.31 a.m., April 4th, Hazar, completely unaware of what had taken place earlier that morning, sends Bob a text. Just wanted to make sure you're doing okay, because I know Nima came way down hard on you. And thank you for being such a classy man, handling it with class. Love you, selfish pricks. Now, once Hazar learned of Bob Lee's death, she went straight into family mode, refusing to speak to police detectives. Sergeant Brent Dittmer said that when he knocked on Hazar's apartment at the Millennium Tower, he knocked on her door, she immediately requested her attorney and refused any cooperation with investigators. And at the time of this recording, she still has not spoken to law enforcement. 
even though she is expected to be a witness at Nima's trial. But a witness for which side, that I, I don't know. On April 13th, the San Francisco Police Department arrested 38-year-old Nima Momeni for the stabbing death, you know, murder of Bob Lee. Bob Lee has an autopsy done by the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office. The manner of death was listed as homicide by the medical examiner with the cause of death being multiple stab wounds. Now, the autopsy showed the two stab wounds to the heart and a stab wound to the hip. Toxicology reports showed alcohol, cocaine, ketamine, and Zyrtec in Bob's system. But none of these contributed to his death in any way. April 13th, San Francisco police held a press conference announcing the arrest of Nima Momeni for the first-degree murder of Bob Lee on April 4th, 2023. Now, police announced at this press conference that a search warrant was executed at Nima's Emeryville home, with two other search warrants being served in San Francisco, one at the One Hotel at 8 Mission Street, where Bob Lee was staying, the second being at the apartment at the Millennium Tower, where Hazar and her husband owned a residence. Now, Hazar's husband is Dr. Dino Elyasnia, who is a very prominent uh, plastic surgeon from San Francisco. The married couple, despite the rumors of their marriage being in trouble, they held a united front and they showed their support for Hazar's brother, Nima. Now, I don't know, though, man, like if I'm the sister in this, I am pissed, right? That because of my brother's overbearing bullshit, my friend is dead and possibly my down the street dick, right? When he's in town. So my friend is dead. You messed up my dick. You threatened and pissed off my drug dealer. Now you got me front and center with a husband that I don't get along with at the courthouse supporting your ass where eventually, right, she's going to have to testify. So if I'm the sister, stop including me in your bullshit, right? If I'm Hazar, that's where, that's where I'm at at this point. You know, speaking from Hazar's point of view, right, I'm 37. I can do drugs if I want. And fuck whoever I want. Especially, you know, after certain things about Nima start to come out, it shows a very hypocritical side. Now, I understand that some people are going to say he's being protective, right, of his sister. And if she was eight and couldn't protect herself, maybe. But this woman is 37, and it seems she's got a pretty decent handle on her life, right? Now, him, on the other hand, completely different story but we will get there too. So Nima pleads not guilty and a two-day preliminary hearing was set for both sides to argue why the case should or should not proceed through the legal system. Hazar wrote a letter ahead of her brother's hearing defending her brother's character. And part of the letter read, he watches out for me. Nima is one year older than I am. We have been together our entire lives. Together with our mother, we are a very close family. 
We are in near constant contact and have deep feelings of love for one another. My brother means the world to me. I don't believe we could live without each other. Well, that's unfortunate, right? Because I unfortunately just don't see him leaving. I mean, maybe, right? He's got some banger attorneys, but I don't know. So July 31st of 2023, this is day one of the preliminary hearing. Now, Nima's original attorney, Paula Canny, has been replaced with a powerhouse new defense team, right? So there's Sam Zangana, who is like a big time celebrity attorney, Tony Brass, Joe Aaron, and absolute powerhouse of a defense attorney from South Florida, Bradford Cohen. And he's represented a lot of celebrities also, but more in the, you know, kind of hip hop sector, lots of rappers. But he is a hell of a lawyer. Like he is incredible. So Nima's stacked, right? Like he has an amazing defense team. Like, he came ready for war. And in my opinion, you know, he's facing an uphill battle, right? So, I don't know. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins said, Nima Momeni was armed with a kitchen knife when he left the Millennium Tower with Bob Lee. Once Nima had him in a dark and isolated area under the Bay Bridge, Nima stabs Bob in the heart and leaves him dying in the street. They set out to present their case with Omid Talai. I'm not sure, quite sure how to say that. T-A-L-A-I. I don't know, but we're just going to go with Prosecutor Omid. And he was the lead prosecutor for this case with Judge Harry Dorfman presiding. And... He was not the original judge, I don't think, either. He And I believe he started out only presiding for this hearing, and he replaced the original judge, Judge Victor Wong. And I believe he was the judge just for that hearing because he was the one who signed off on these search warrants in April. So, yeah, for that reason, he was seated for this hearing. But he was not the judge that is going to continue on with the case. And this courtroom was full with Bob's family, friends, and supporters filling three rows of the gallery, like on one side. And then Nima's family was on the other side. The preliminary hearing began about 10 a.m. with no cameras allowed inside the courtroom. So Nima enters the courtroom in an orange jail, you know, issue jumpsuit, and he has no mask on. So he took to his table with his defense team, who, in fact, they needed an extra table brought in to accommodate all of his attorneys. And the state only having, you know, one person, and that was Prosecutor Omid. So, you know, I don't know. If I'm Prosecutor Omid, even though I'm probably very confident in my case, that's got to be a little intimidating, right? Or maybe not. Maybe he's just like, okay, whatever. 
but I would probably be a little intimidated. The first witness is called by the state, and that is San Francisco police officer Cedric Hood. Now, Officer Cedric was one of two people to have arrived at the scene first. Officer Cedric and the second officer, Officer Jackson, attempted to render aid to Mr. Lee with Officer Jackson doing CPR first before Officer Cedric took over the resuscitation efforts. Officer Cedric testified that when he arrived, Mr. Lee was bleeding uncontrollably from the chest and the hip, completely unresponsive, and they were unable to find a pulse. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he did not have a pulse. But, you know, he he technically could have had one still, but it was just so light and faint that, you know, just feeling for it, you're not going to find it. Like, you would need a machine to find it. Now, he also testified that he saw blood spattered across the sidewalk on Main Street and that a sergeant found a four-inch-long silver knife with a black handle that was the brand of Joseph Joseph. This was found discarded inside of a locked Caltrans parking lot on the morning of April 4th. The prosecutor then asked Officer Cedric if Bob had any weapons in his possession, which Bob did not. The police recovered a hoodie, cell phone, socks, shoes, and a wallet from Bob on the night of his death. So he was completely unarmed. Nima's defense team member, Bradford Cohen, was the attorney that stepped in to cross-examine Officer Cedric. And his first question for Officer Cedric was, were there any homeless people in the area when officers arrived on the scene? And he affirmed that there was. There was one person who appeared to be a homeless man who was sleeping behind a nearby group of trash bins. He was approximately like 40 feet away and completely incoherent. He was questioned by officers who just determined he was not involved in this incident whatsoever. Go back to sleep behind your trash bin. You know what I mean? He he wasn't involved. The second person called was San Francisco Police Department Crime Scene Investigator Officer Rosalind Check. It might be Rosalind. I'm not really sure, but I will probably use Rosalind. Prosecutor Omid did her direct examination. Officer Rosalind has been a police officer for 18 years and in the crime scene investigation unit for 12 years. Officer Check said she arrived on the scene during daylight hours and was directed to a coned-off area in the Caltrans parking lot. Now, it was there that Officer Rosalind finds a four-inch bloody silver kitchen knife with a black handle of the brand Joseph Joseph. Officer Rosalind said part of her crime scene duties were to process the blood at the scene, and there was quite a bit of it to document. 
Officer Rosalind said she investigated a blood stain, a quote, drip trail, unquote, showing where the victim had staggered after the attack and had traveled about a block. The blood droplets left a drip trail along the sidewalks of Harrison and Main Streets and led to the exterior front doors of an apartment building at 403 Main Street called the port side, where video footage would later show Bob just desperately banging on doors, trying to get some type of help. And that is just so sad. Officer Rosalind said she found blood arced across the wall on the port side and on a call box outside the building. So Bob was seen in a video trying to use that call box to try to call for help, I'm assuming. The blood trail then went back out into the street. So in addition to the knife and blood, a vape pen and chocolate were also found in the street, along with a pop socket cell phone accessory that did have blood on it. And nearby that was a small plastic baggie the kind that are typically used for narcotics, and that was also found. Now, this area apparently was known for drug dealing, and she said that she did not know whose baggie it was, right? And it didn't say if the baggie was empty, but I'm assuming yes, because nothing was ever talked about being in it. So I'm thinking it's just an empty baggie. And it's kind of crazy to me that one neighborhood is super upper class, right? That they have two private on-call 24-7 security officers that cover a 67-block radius that include offices for Google, Mozilla, and Gap. And about one block down, you know, has homeless people sleeping by their trash cans. A lot of trash on the ground, including empty baggies, and is a known drug area. So that's kind of crazy to me, right? So apparently the 300 block of Main Street, banger place to live, right? The 403 Main Street address, homelessness, drugs, and litter. That's just wild to me. But I know like that happens. A lot of places are like that. One is a phenomenal area. You go down a block or so and you don't want to be there after dark kind of thing, you know? Anyhow, so Officer Rosalind took DNA swabs of the four-inch kitchen knife that was found in the Caltrans parking lot, as well as the baggie. But the prosecution never asked whose DNA it was that was found on the two items even though in an earlier court hearing, Prosecutor Omid had said that DNA links Nima to the knife. So, I'm not sure on that one. Now, on cross-examination, defense heavyweight attorney Sam Zangana, Zangana? I think it's Zangana. He came in this time, right? Now, Mr. Zangana asked, Officer Rosalind about the knife that she collected. Officer Rosalind said the knife looked a bit old and used, with Mr. Zangana asking, 
it wasn't a brand new knife. It looked like an older knife that had been used a lot, correct? And Officer Rosalind agreed. Yes, it did. Now, I can kind of see what the attorney was trying to do, I guess, to make it seem like it had been out there longer than just a few hours. But Nima was supposedly to have taken it from his sister's apartment. So it wouldn't have been a brand new knife anyway. Yeah. And the knife was a Joseph Joseph knife that matched a set of Joseph Joseph knives in Hazar's apartment. So Mr. Zangane then asked if a bag of cocaine was found during a search of the one hotel. Now, Officer Rosalind said that while she did help with the processing of the hotel room, she was unaware of any cocaine. And what that had to do with anything at that point, I don't know. I'm sure it was just a tactic to try to discredit Bob, I guess. But, you know, cocaine didn't kill him. This wasn't a drug deal gone bad, you know. So, but he's a defense attorney. He's got to do his job, right? So the court go ahead and takes a break after this testimony ends. And during the break, defense attorney Anthony Brass spoke with the media, and he makes the comment, we want to know why police work wasn't as complete as it should have been. But he never said, you know, what about the investigation was not complete or not done or not looked into. So again, I think that was more just like a media tactic. After the break, the third witness is called, and that's San Francisco Police Department Officer Malad Rashidian. Now, Officer Malad was responsible for canvassing the areas known to have been involved in all of the incidences that night and to find the surveillance cameras that showed Bob and Nima's movements from the time that they left the Millennium Tower. Now, Officer Malad had found videos recorded at 13 locations. The prosecution played all 13 videos. However, the gallery was unable to see the screen due to a partially obstructed view, which was the so the screen was angled toward the judge, the defendant, and the attorneys. Now, Nima watched the videos very closely and took notes, but he didn't show any emotion, or give a reaction of any kind. Now, the videos that were played in court, they tracked the following movements of Bob and Nima. Okay, one, Lee and Momeni arriving separately at Millennium Tower, where Momeni's sister, Hazar, lives. So we've covered that. Now, these videos are activated via motion sensor. Now, the next video shows Bob and Nima leaving the Millennium Tower together and sharing an elevator. The next one, both men getting into Nima's white BMW and driving toward the Bay Bridge. The next one shows the BMW parking. After that, it shows Lee staggering away before collapsing on Main Street. And the officer testified that Mr. Lee appeared to collapse in this video. 
Now, following that was the BMW immediately leaving the area and driving east over the Bay Bridge with the final one showing the BMW arriving at Nima's Emeryville home. Now, the footage was played from cameras that were located at Mission Street, which I believe was the hotel, Main Street, Beale Street, Harrison Street, Bryant Street, and the Bay Bridge. So defense attorney Bradford Cohen on the cross of Officer Malad pointed out that some of the videos are just too grainy to even tell what was happening on them. And Cohen told Officer Malad that he made it more blurry by trying to manipulate the videos, telling him you zoomed in, the pixels, like it made it worse. It does not enhance the video whatsoever. Now, Cohen continued, some of these videos are very limited in their time and scope. Some of the timestamps are off by seconds. Some are off by minutes. Some don't even have timestamps at all. What the hell kind of cameras did they have then? Huh. But the prosecutor agreed, saying that some of the videos were fuzzy and that it was fair to say that they were not crystal clear. Sergeant Brent Dittmer was called next. Now, Sergeant Brent was the lead homicide detective for this case. Sergeant Brent testified to the brand of the knife being Joseph Joseph, which matched a knife set from Hazar's apartment. He also testified to looking through Bob's phone and found relevant texts from Hazar to Bob. Now, the defense stepped in and challenged the state's motive. Attorney Zangana brought up Sergeant Brent's case notes. Now, his notes referenced the parties from April 3rd, first at Hazar's and then at drug dealer Jeremy's. One of the women at Jeremy's party, Aranza, she confirmed to Sergeant Brent that, yes, GHB, cocaine, LSD, DMT, and nitrous oxide, or the whippets, were available at the party, and they were provided by the party host, drug dealer Jeremy. Aranza confirmed the story of her and Hazar taking the three hits of GHB each, with her vomiting and passing out, and Hazar crying and getting upset. She called Nima to pick them up, and again at this time, Bob had already left, so he was gone. Attorney Zangina asks Sergeant Brent to confirm that his notes showed that the women were not upset. They were both normal and understanding, also stating that no assault or anything sexual had occurred. Now, my thing is, this, you know, when he spoke to them was way later, right? So they weren't going to be as upset as when it all first happened, and who gives a fuck if they're not upset, right? They didn't kill Bob. It was the brother who was upset. But okay. Also written in Sergeant Brent's notes, Bob and a friend that 
he left with received a FaceTime call from Nima. Now, during that call, Nima asked Bob about drug dealer Jeremy's interactions with his sister and whether anything inappropriate had happened between them. So, and, and I still don't know, was Nima mad at Bob because, he, you know, he felt like Bob left Hazar at Jeremy's, you know, maybe in a vulnerable condition? Or was he mad because he thought Bob might also be fucking his sister? Like, I, I can't figure it out because now he's asking, again, if she's fucking Jeremy. So, I don't know. It just seems like super inappropriate brother-sister relationship. That's way too overbearing and in her personal life. Sergeant Brent's notes also covered the confrontation between Nima and Jeremy that had happened later that night at Hazar's apartment. And it confirmed that Nima was behaving in a threatening manner and verbally threatened to kill him. Now, Jeremy leaves before Bob ends up showing up at 12.39 a.m., and Nima had thrown him out, apparently. At the hearing, Prosecutor Omid held up the text message that Hazar had sent to Bob that morning, checking on him after the confrontation had gone down between Nima and Bob at the Millennium Tower. So, Prosecutor Omid, he used that to show that Nima's motive was to harm Bob, calling the attack against him planned and deliberate. But of course, the defense argued that Nima had no feelings of malice toward Bob and that he had no motive to kill him. Now, the defense tried to bring in drug dealer Jeremy and his criminal background, but the prosecutors objected because it was irrelevant to the case. Now, the defense says it is relevant because the prosecutors think that this is an honor killing because of allegations of sexual wrongdoing. You know, Bob had never assaulted his sister. But Judge Dorfman shut that shit down quick, saying that I haven't heard anything about an honor killing motivation he ruled that Jeremy's legal problems are not the issue of this preliminary hearing and that Jeremy is not the victim in this case, nor is he the aggressor in this case. So, you know, he really doesn't have anything to do with it except, you know, just very minor. But I also feel like it could have easily been Jeremy instead of Bob, though, that ended up dead that night because Nima just seemed incredibly unstable. Now, while Jeremy's criminal history is not relevant to this case, I have to side-eye it just a little bit. So when police served search warrants on drug dealer Jeremy's apartment in 2020, 2021, and 2022, Voluminous amounts of narcotics were seized. A kilo of coke, a kilo of meth, and a cornucopia of other drugs. Now, it, apparently, Jeremy was also recently accused of sodomy. 
yeah, I don't have any other information on that. Now, I'm side-eyeing this because all that happened, right, three years in a row. So I don't know if the coke and the meth and the cornucopia, right, were all seized in one search and they had tried three times to find it or if on each search warrant, you know, every year, they, you know, like in 2020, they found the cocaine. In 2022, they found the meth, right? Like, I don't know, you know, how that order went or like how it worked, but they found all that. I don't care what order it went in, right? And you're still out partying and openly selling with not an issue. That I side-eye. I'm not saying he's a snitch. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's very odd that he has those type of items like taken from his apartment and nothing's happened. He's still out selling and just kind of open, you know, openly partying. So to me, that's a little odd. That's it. But you know, his criminal history has nothing to do with Momeni stabbing Bob. So I see why the defense would want to bring it in, kind of to just discredit, you know. But I also understand why the judge shit-canned it. Like, it just doesn't have anything to do with anything. So I think the judge made a good decision on that one. Now, Nima, he did not have a criminal history, Right. But he did have a violence complaint filed against him. And this happened on August 1st, but I don't know what year it took place. So all I could find was this event that took place on an August 1st of some year. So a woman who has not been publicly identified accused Nima of attacking her on August 1st. And this is according to an Emeryville police report. She called the police at 3.11 p.m. to the 4,000 block of Harlan Street. And she appeared to be upset and on the verge of crying. So the police, no, I'm sorry, the woman tells police that Nima had been allowing her to stay on his couch in exchange for cleaning the unit. She said that they were not in a romantic relationship and she had said that earlier that day, Nima angrily yelled at her to get her belongings and leave. He allegedly grabbed her waist and arm and pushed her against a counter. Now, the woman told police that she suspected Nima of being unstable and that one minute he will be fine and the next he will go off for no reason. Initially, the woman didn't want to press charges, but later had changed her mind. So police took photos of the area of the woman's body where she said that Nima had grabbed her. And an officer said that he saw redness, but like he couldn't tell if that was from being grabbed specifically. Now, Nima, of course, denied the allegation, right? When he was questioned by police, and told them that he actually wanted to pursue charges against the woman, who he accused of having pushed him. That's kind of a bitch move there, too. And Nima's roommate confirmed to the police 
that he had seen Nima and the woman arguing that day, but that he did not see Nima batter her in any way. So Nima was cited on suspicion of misdemeanor battery and released the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. They never filed charges against them and... You know, pretty much it was done, but they would not disclose the reason why they opted not to file charges. I'm going to guess because, well, you know what? I'm not going to guess. I don't know the reason why. So I will just leave it at that. So the autopsy was gone over as well. Dr. Ellen Moffitt, she is the assistant medical examiner. And her report said that, yes, there were drugs in Bob's system, but there was no link between those substances and Bob's cause of death. Bob's death was listed officially as, you know, multiple stab wounds. The manner and method of his death was homicide by sharp injury. Bob suffered from three stab wounds, two to the chest, one to the hip. And one of the chest wounds was two to three inches deep. That's crazy. Now, the only witnesses who testified during this two-day hearing were San Francisco uh, Police Department officers who were the first responders or who gathered the evidence and, you know, otherwise was involved in investigating the case details. Hazar didn't testify. She was still refusing to speak with detectives. Judge Dorfman ruled that the case will be moving forward, right, to a murder trial. But there was definitely enough evidence. And that was what, you know, the two-day preliminary hearing was for, just to make, you know, put kind of their cards out on the table, make the prosecution do that, so they can see where their case is going, right? That's, I think, why the defense wanted to not waive the preliminary hearing. But the judge ruled that, yes, most definitely there is enough evidence. And Judge Dorfman actually addressed Nima Momeni directly. And he tells him, quote, A decision was made to kill. Nima Momeni, I am satisfied that the only crime charged, murder, did occur and that you are responsible for it, unquote. Damn, right? Like, wow, that's intense. But, I mean, yes, he is innocent until proven guilty, right? They have not presented their case in court. But he is on video every step of the way committing this murder, and then leaving Bob on the ground to bleed out and die. As far as what his defense team thinks about the ruling, they were expecting it, right? Like, this was absolutely expected. And Nima's four attorneys said that their defense strategy and witness list at trial is going to be very different compared to that hearing where they didn't call anyone, right? But they said, what you don't know is our defense strategy, and you won't know that until trial. And Zangana, you know, told the reporters outside the courtroom on Tuesday, 
you know, at a trial, we're going to have experts. There's going to be a lot more that we do. When it matters is at trial, not at this preliminary hearing. Now, Bradford Cohen steps in, right, and tells reporters, only an idiot would show you what cards they are holding in a poker game. It's not like we can sit here and tell you what the defense is going to be. And that actually sounds just like Bradford Cohen. Like, I can hear him in my head saying it. I follow his lives on Instagram. He is a phenomenal lawyer, gives great information. No, Nima Momeni pleads not guilty on August 15th of 2023. And as I was about to record this, Nima has a bond hearing. Now, Nima's lawyer, Mr. Zangana, argued that his client was not the cold-blooded and premeditated killer that the state is saying he is. Instead, Zangana suggests that this was a heat of passion situation, right? Now, Nima's defense argued on his behalf that he presented no danger to society because he was, at worst, an inept killer. What a terrible argument. He doesn't pose a danger to society because he's bad at murdering? Okay, but clearly Nima was not that inept because he successfully carried out a multi-stage pre-planned murder by himself. And if it was a heat of passion killing, then he most definitely is a danger to society because that shows that he is unable to control his anger and or behavior. But none of that really mattered because Nima's request to be let out on a bail of $250,000, you know, and they said that they would go up to a million dollars, it was denied. I didn't think there was any way that they would let this man out on bail. Now, Nima sat quietly while his lawyers, you know, kind of did their thing, continuing to argue that Nima had no criminal record and he wasn't a flight risk, stating that he did not flee when he had the chance to. Instead, he hired legal counsel and, you know, that showed his commitment to wanting his day in court. And Momeni, he seemed unfazed by the ruling. He, I'm sure he expected that it was not going to go through. It was going to be denied. So Nima, in his jailhouse orange, he whispered and waved to his sister, Hazar, and his mother, Manaz Momeni. And they both were sitting about 20 feet behind him in the courtroom gallery. As Nima was led out by the guards, Minaz just openly wept, right? And she was wiping away her tears with a tissue. And I imagine as a mother, that has to be devastating, especially if you know your son did it. You know, I think that would break my heart more. And I do feel sorry for her. She, you know, didn't ask for any of this. She wasn't involved in any of it. You know, this is her son. So I absolutely have sympathy for her. So Nima's next court date is set for October 25th of 2023. And this hearing is where they are going to set his trial date. 
A lot of people felt a certain way when they first heard about Bob's violent death and the location where it took place. This led to an outcry about the violence in San Francisco, specifically downtown, and the minimal to no consequences for it. The mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, has pledged to crack down on crime after Bob's murder stirred up debates over public safety. Now, Elon Musk tweeted a reply back to a user stating, violent crime in San Francisco is horrific. And even if the attackers are caught, they are often released immediately. Even though it was clear that the murder of Bob Lee had absolutely nothing to do with any type of crime wave that had been hitting the streets of San Francisco. Several high-profile figures, they used Bob's death to vent their concerns about the public safety in San Francisco and to place the blame on the California City's Board of Supervisors, as well as on the city's former and current district attorneys for being you know, way too soft on the criminals. The accusations mounted after video footage was released of Bob wounded and bleeding, desperately banging on doors, trying to find help while wandering the city's East Cut neighborhood. Now, the East Cut is a local effort to unite the Rincon Hill, Folsom Street, and Trans Bay areas and give this newly formed area like a rebrand or a new identity and make it seem more welcoming and safe to be in. San Francisco Supervisor Dean Preston, and just FYI, a supervisor sits on a board of supervisors, so he's one of several, that responds to the needs of the people of the city and county of San Francisco. They also establish city policies and they adopt ordinances and resolutions. I had to look that up because I did not know what a San Francisco supervisor was. So that's what it is. But Supervisor Dean took all of the accusations regarding crime kind of personally, and he called for a public apology from those who rushed to judgment on the circumstances surrounding Bob's death. Bob's death also brought up another discussion other than the crime rates in San Francisco, and that is the private lives of California's most wealthiest tech executives. More specifically, the drug use and late-night partying and the continued after-partying. The talk screen results from Bob Lee, they sort of opened up a lot of people's eyes to recreational drug use among the very upper class. In my opinion, I mean, it just confirmed what most people already knew or suspected. None of that shocks me a bit. The fact that cocaine was involved. Okay, that I mean, who didn't know that? Right. Coming from Miami, cocaine is everywhere. So I I don't really blink an eye especially if we're talking, you know, people with a lot of money. 
I would say 9.99 times out of 10, cocaine's going to be involved. But that's just my opinion. Now, Nima Momeni's original lawyer, Paula Canny, she made a very crass and just incredibly insensitive, not to mention unbelievably inappropriate, comment to a reporter regarding Bob Lee's autopsy results. So Paula makes the comment, there's a lot of drugs in Bob Lee's system. I mean, Bob Lee's system is like the Walgreens of recreational drugs. And she said that after a pretrial hearing um, that was outside the courthouse in San Francisco. She also went on to say, what happens when people take drugs? Generally, they act like drug people. And what drug people act like is not themselves, not happy-go-lucky, she added, just kind of illusory and make bad decisions and do bad things. Now, I am going to point out that people were outraged over this statement, and she did have to apologize for it, but I, I don't care. Is she insane? First of all, okay, all the people involved in this case were known to be drug users, right? But... The behavior that she described a drug user to have didn't describe any of the behavior that Bob was exhibiting or that Kazar was exhibiting. What she described was the behavior her client was exhibiting, right? And for her to make that assumption and call them drug people and I don't even have to tell you how incredibly shitty that statement was. So, you know, it it just does not surprise me uh, that some people think that way. But still, I just, I don't know. I thought that was horrible. Now, Paula spoke very plainly about her belief that it was drugs that played a significant role in Bob's death. Now, I don't know how she thought that or where she thought the drugs had come in. It, I just, that just is a stupid statement. So again, I'm not surprised that very shortly after making that statement, Paula Canny quit the case citing a conflict of interest or AKA she was fired and this was a face-saving excuse. So from there, you know, Nima's current powerhouse defense team was put in place. Now, all of these headlines that were coming out surrounding Bob's death, it was definitely hard on the family. They were reading and hearing, you know, all sorts of things being said about their family member, you know, or their friend who was the victim in this case. And even though Bob and Krista had split up in 2019, they were still very close and they remained in daily contact. They were co-parents, but they were also like best friends. And Krista wants her husband or, you know, her ex-husband, because I still I can't confirm if they were like actually officially divorced, but they were separated. But she wants him remembered for who he was. And that was a loving, respectful, and gentle person. When asked about Nima Momeni, Krista said that they were acquainted through the sister, T. 
Tina, which is Hazar, but I, her friends called her Tina. So she goes on to say that she didn't think that they were friends. She said, I never once heard him mention Nima Momeni's name. The fact that he stabbed him multiple times is disgusting. Now, Bob's father, Rick Lee, spoke on losing his son in a statement posted to Facebook. He says, I just lost my best friend, my son, Bob Lee. When he lost his life on the street in San Francisco early Tuesday morning, and he's referencing um, the morning of April 4th. He said, I moved to Mill Valley, California with Bob after his mother died in 2019. And we recently relocated together to Miami in October of 2022. Life has been an adventure with two bachelors living together. And I'm so happy that we were able to become so close these last years. Bob would give you the shirt off his back. He would never look down on anyone and adhered to a strict no judgment philosophy. Bobby worked harder than anyone and was the smartest person I have ever known. He will be missed by all those that knew him, and thank you to those who have reached out in support. Now, friends and colleagues also came out to speak on Bob. Joshua Goldbard said, My heart is broken tonight. Bob was a force of nature. He helped to birth Android and Cash App into our world, Moby was his dream. I will miss him every day. Bill Barheit said, Bob was a dad. He was a generous and decent human being who did not deserve to be killed. Now, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, he tweeted, it's real. Getting calls. Heartbreaking. So you can tell he was just shocked, right? But to wake up, and, and hear this news and find out that, yes, it, it did happen. Tom Sowers was a former Green Beret from Missouri. And he met Bob Lee at a fundraiser in Washington, D.C. And he said that Bob had this innate kindness that contrasted the tech bro stereotype. FPV Ventures co-founder Wesley Chan he met and befriended Bob as his co-worker at Google. And he said that Bob frequently coached and encouraged other engineers while staying humble about his own accomplishments. He said that's one thing I loved about him. He was always humble. Joshua Goldbard also said, Bob's real resume is the hearts and minds that he touched in his time here. Bob's legacy is the feeling that you can make a difference if you try. So Bob clearly touched just so many people, right? In all areas of his life, not just the tech industry. Krista Lee told reporters after Nima Momeni's two-day preliminary hearing, she felt that, unfortunately, I think he might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time of meeting Bob. We will find out more as the case progresses. I certainly hope that someday we will get a motive. Will we ever? 
I don't know. Does the family deserve that? His children certainly do. She added that his death still stings. And honestly, I imagine it probably always will on some level. But it's only been a few months. It probably stings incredibly bad. Now, someone came forward after Bob's death. This was a friend that he was supposed to be meeting back in Miami. And this friend said that Bob had been in San Francisco on business and he had stayed an extra day instead of returning as planned. And he was killed on that extra day, which is, oh my, it's bizarre, right? Because had he gone home, this wouldn't have happened. But fate is fate, right? I know when it's your time, it's your time. You can't change it. But that is still just kind of guttural to think about, you know? The friend continued to say, I'm still in shock. Like, no way he did anything to provoke this. And I feel like he would just hand his money and watch over to a mugger. According to champion UFC fighter Jake Shields, who knew Bob very well, He said that he, meaning Bob, did comment on San Francisco deteriorating, which was the main reason that he had relocated to Miami. Bob's brother, Timothy Oliver Lee, he opened up a GoFundMe in May to help with legal expenses and to help care for the two children that Bob left behind. Now, Bob was a millionaire many, many times over, right? So what is going on? Well, he was asking for public donations because, unfortunately, due to Bob's sudden passing, his assets have to be processed through Florida probate system, as well as, you know, held for evidence. So his family was pleading for help. Now, my uncle died a few years back and you know I was named in his will and we did have to deal with the probate court and this was in 2021 and it's still not fully through the probate system so I can imagine that is incredibly frustrating especially if certain things are being held for evidence so that is really sad to hear And that is all I have for this case right now. Once Nima Momeni's trial finishes, I'll do an update. I mean, this was a senseless case. Bob had contributed so much to the world that in my opinion, you know, the world was robbed of his genius and his family was robbed of an amazing father, brother, husband, or ex-husband, because I don't know co-worker, friend, all the categories. So it's it's just, it's just, it's a sad case and senseless. That's what makes it so sad. So that is all for this case. Don't forget to follow me so you never miss an episode. Every Monday I post a Mystery Monday episode that focuses on an unsolved or missing persons case. Every other Saturday I post a solved Saturday case 
that focuses on a solved case and most times the trial process, unless a plea is involved. The last Mystery Monday was on the reappearance of Alicia Navarro. A new Mystery Monday episode will be up at 7 a.m. Eastern this Monday. The first of every month is a Histories Mysteries episode where I focus on a true crime case or event from history that could be unsolved or maybe it is solved. This month's episode is about the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. Share, comment, follow, give me a rating. I'm just starting out, so it would help me out a ton, and I would appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining me today. I hope to talk with you again soon, and have a great day.